because the way that our cities have been designed for a long time, it's physical activity is designed out of it a lot because you kind of do your errands, you go to go to work and you're you're stepping into a vehicle. So if you're choosing to ride your bike or walk for your everyday tasks, uh, especially when you're really busy and we get busier once we get out of COVID, it, it will make differences in your in your health physically and your mental health without having to always try to squeeze in that gym time. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. I'm John Simran, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your grateful host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today, in episode number 57, I'm super excited to share with you all my conversation with Aaron Riediger from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, about the surprising power of the simple, upright, Dutch-style bicycle. Aaron is in the final stages of officially becoming an architect. You'll quickly learn that she's passionate about creating equitable cities, which is partly how she got interested in advocating for safer cycling for everyone. And she's also a very talented storyteller and the producer of the Plain Bicycle Podcast, which she will tell you all about. But before we dive into that discussion, please allow me a moment to once again mention that this podcast is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you all so very much for your amazing support. If you'd also like to help, please head over to my website at activetowns, that's plural, .org, and simply click on the blue donate link in the top right corner of the page. As always, I've included the link in the show notes and on the landing page for this episode. One last thing before we get started. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to and rate Active Towns on your preferred listening platform. This ensures that you won't miss an episode and it helps enhance the visibility of the podcast. Thanks. Okay, let's get this delightful conversation with Aaron Rowling. Aaron, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thanks for having me. First off, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today about the Plain Bicycle podcast mini series and, you know, the completely remarkable, unremarkable everyday cycling movement that has been gaining momentum in Winnipeg. Uh, but to get us started, uh, please just share a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I'm from Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I'm actually almost an architect. I'm doing my exam uh, this year, so I can't technically call myself an architect yet, but I'm getting there. And I'm really interested in cities and transportation, and namely equitable transportation. So everybody having access to a way to get around without having to spend piles of money. So that's really why I got interested in cycling and cycling advocacy, because I think it's there's a lot of untapped potential in cycling uh, for people to be able to move around their cities for a very low cost and convenient way. Fantastic. Um, and let's dive into to that a little bit in terms since you brought it up and we can try to define that term a little deeper um, when you talk about equitable transportation, um, what do you really, what, what does that mean to you personally? Um, yeah. So for me, that means 
not having to be trapped by car ownership, essentially, when I talk about equitable transportation. So we're very much embedded in a car culture in a lot of places in North America, especially in mid-sized cities that don't have the robust public transportation networks. So it's a way to look at other options for transportation that cost less money and therefore more people are able to access them. Fantastic. Yeah. And I I think you had a tweet that you put out where you actually sort of outlined, you know, some of the cost, you know, cost, you know, to your chosen active mobility mode. And, you know, why don't you talk a little bit about that post? Yeah. So for the last two years, actually, I've gone back and calculated how much I've spent on transportation in a year. So I used to be a car owner and I still do drive sometimes, but using a car co-op that we have here. So it's just basically pay per use. And so going from car ownership to car co-op using more public transportation. So here that's the bus and then really amping up the cycling and and walking like I do do a lot of walking for everyday tasks just doing that when I add up all my transportation costs it's about $80 a month and that includes even some car rental in there for road trips and and gas associated with that so when I look at $80 a month and then you look at I think it was actually an American statistic that this year the average cost of a car is around 40 grand and when you look at that over the months people spend $800 a month on average on their car and that includes you know that's everything because it's even if you own your car and you're past your car payments, you're still paying for maintenance, you're still paying for parking, likely, you're paying for gas. So they're, they're really expensive tools. And often we use them for things that they don't need to be used for. So short trips to the grocery store, or going to chat with friends, or in Winnipeg, for example, like from one, I live centrally, like close to downtown. And for me to go see my parents in the suburbs, it's only about a 20 minute drive. And I've discovered like a year ago, that's a 40 minute bike ride in the summer. So there are other ways to do things. And I think that you can save a lot of money if you're not if you're not driving and and it's a huge cost to people's households. So if you're low income already and things are tight or you're just out of school and you still have student loans, if you can do it, it's a great thing to try to cut out. And there's also lifestyle benefits from it as well. Fantastic. So were you like sort of engaged in these thoughts and, and, you know, was this part of your life prior to producing the Plain Bicycle podcast series? Or was this something that really took off from that experience? It was a part of my life in a way because from going through uh, architecture education and, and beginning the process to becoming an architect, I'm really in tune to the way cities are built. And I see the amount of space, especially my city's core, that is taken up by cars and parking in particular. So it starts to become a bit of a design problem. So if we have all this space that it, it makes it not as nice of an environment to be walking around and inhabiting because we need so much space for cars and for parking, what are the solutions to that? So that was part of it. And then the other part of it before doing the podcast was just a general interest in riding my bike and cycling in a different way. So I've never been somebody who's gotten into the sports side of cycling, but I've always just had like a simple joy from cycling, like when I take my bike out for a ride. So I thought that these are some problems that could be solved. And I'd heard about the Plain Bicycle Project, which had already had a first round when I did my podcast. And I thought, this is a really interesting solution that I think more people should know about. 
Okay, so we've been dancing around it a little bit. Let's <laughs> talk a little bit about the uh, Plain Bicycle podcast series that you produced. And why don't you give a brief description for our listeners about the series? And then we'll also, uh, you know, sort of pivot and 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 get a get a, a better understanding of how you came up with the idea to to tell this tell this story, tell this narrative. Okay, so the plane bicycle podcast is essentially about the plane bicycle project. And what the plane bicycle project is, it's about a group of Winnipeggers who traveled to the Netherlands and they decided to bring back a shipping container full of secondhand Dutch bicycles. And the goal was try to not just bring the bikes back, but bring back the bike culture. So to start to influence bike culture in North America to be similar to the everyday bike culture you see in the Netherlands. So throughout the podcast, uh, we talk about that actual story of how they pulled that off, as well as what the Plain Bicycle Project means. Fantastic. Yeah. And I, I, I have to say, it's one of the most enjoyable series to, to listen to. I listened to it early on, uh, you know, during the pandemic, you know, after you produced it and got it out there. And, and then I re-listened to it yesterday. And it was just, it was so cool to, to hear that narrative again, you know, from start to finish. So it's, it's six episodes in, in the series. And uh, I really encourage all of the listeners of the Active Towns podcast, many of you uh, there in the Netherlands, you'll get a, a hoot out of listening to this as well. So what's the status of the series? Are we going to hear more? Um, so right now, it was intended to be a five-part miniseries. And then I added another episode because there were so much, many interesting things happening during the pandemic to do with cycling. But I do want to do more at some point. My, my immediate goal is passing my architecture exam. But after that, I do want to branch out because there's more interesting things that have happened since with the Plain Bicycle team and kind of furthering the concept of equitability and transportation. I, I wanted to dive into a little bit more of that. And I'm also interested in um, in women and cycling. So I think I might do some collaborations with some women locally and, and through throughout North America and the world and, and, and talk about how we can um, start to reduce that gender gap in cycling that is present in a lot of uh, places, not in the Netherlands, but in most other places. Yeah, and that was definitely something that was mentioned in the series and, and one of the folks that you were interviewing. I mean, it probably came up, you know, three or four times uh, at that point. What was the biggest surprise that you had uh, from producing and sharing uh, this podcast series? I was surprised how many people in the Netherlands are listening to it because <laughs> it's about them. But I guess they thought it was uh, in terms of just like the physical product of the podcast itself. That was kind of the, one of the most interesting things for me is seeing like how many people related to it. Cause I did think it was a little bit more localized and I, I wanted to sort of make sure that the themes were a bit larger. And, and it was interesting to see like people say like, even, you know, people I think of Europe is all very progressive and there's lots of people in the UK saying we have very similar issues. There's people, you know, in, in even in, Germany who are relating to it, they have a more robust uh, cycling culture. And then the people in the Netherlands were kind of also interested in it, even though I guess, I guess maybe it's interesting to see that something that's from your country is, is having an impact somewhere else. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I think, uh, Herman, uh, Tiemann's mentioned it. He was like, you know, it, it's hard for a fish to, you know, really describe, you know, water <laughs> that, 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 that they're in, you know, yeah. and, and to be, to be clear too, there are plenty of cities in the Netherlands, especially in the Southern portion of the country, uh, that are much more car centric. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they are going through the same types of battles that North American cities are going through. And that's one of the, the, the themes and the memes that have really come uh, to the forefront in the last five years or so is that, uh, you know, the, the utopia, quote unquote, the bicycle utopia that we re- refrain or reference in, in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, in Utrecht, they weren't always that way. They had to fight hard to break through the car centric trends that developed uh, over the years, you know, from, from post-World War II. And in fact, you know, Chris and Melissa point out that Rotterdam is a fabulous example for North American cities since it had been destroyed in World War II and then rebuilt in the model of the automobile. So, it's it's a wonderful thing. So let's talk a little bit more about, I think, one of the interesting and, and uh, I think joyful things that sort of emerged from the podcast is that you got a new bike too. Talk a little yeah, bit about that. I did. Um, so when I started making the podcast, uh, actually before I'd even started making the podcast, I I had I was on my kind of second upright North American style upright bike, which is... Um, it's a great bike. It, it, it does feel upright. It's very city friendly, but it wasn't, it's not a Dutch bike. And I didn't have a problem with that. And then I think I remember actually at the time of me buying the bike, I was familiar with Anders and I, I messaged him and said, Oh, do you got any of those lying around? It was before they did, actually did round two. And um, he was like, well, we got a waiting list. You can't jump the queue, but like, maybe I could help you out. And I was like, Oh, it's cool. I like, you know, got a bike. And then I didn't think when I first started doing it, I was just telling a story more about, about everyday cycling. And I didn't think I would actually get one. And then I thought, well, this is kind of silly. Like I'm doing this whole project. Like I really would like to experience it. And then when the shipment came in and I visited them and I went on a couple of them, I was like, Oh my God, this is the best thing ever. Like this is totally different than my upright bike. And it is quite a different feeling. Like you don't really know, uh, what a Dutch upright bike is until you ride one. And it's just, and now that I've had it, I've felt really bad for my other bike because I have like kind of abandoned it. But then actually it's, it's, it's now recently gotten a new life because I put some winter tires on it and it's been kind of the bike I've been riding for the last couple months. And I put my, um, put my Dutch bike aside so that it didn't get too messy, but I, uh, I did go through the whole experience with them. So that was really nice to, um, be able to actually experience what I was talking about. Well, and you just mentioned you winterized, you know, that original North American upright bike. Uh, why don't you go ahead and explain uh, what that is for our listeners uh, that don't uh, actually have winter? Yeah, so I live in Winnipeg, so we get a lot of ice and snow, and um, the concept of winter biking completely terrified me before this year. Um, I just thought it was not going to be for me. It would be too cold, too windy, too conditions too dangerous. So my original plan was to just get a studded tire for my upright for my Dutch bike, and then just switch them out in the front tire. But they weren't available in the European sizes here, and I don't even know if they manufacture them because it's not as much of a problem there. So I decided to winterize my other upright bike. 
but I didn't want to get like, I well, sometimes when I see the winter bikers and, and props to them for, you know, riding in anything, but you know, they got the goggles and all the windproof gear. And I was like, oh, that's just not my personality in the same way that like the other type of biking isn't really my personality. So I was like, I'm just going to try this. Like I was going to invest a little bit of money on winter tires and, and try it. And what they are is they're, they're, they're a bit wider, they're deeper treads and they have studs in them so that they can, they can grasp the snow. And it made a huge difference. So I'm just on my upright bike, like regular bike, it's like hot pink and it's got these studded tires and I just ride in like pretty much normal clothing. Like I wear two, the mitts and the boots were the most important thing because they really hit the wind. And we've had inclement weather in January in Winnipeg. Like it's only Yesterday it was minus 10 Celsius and like usually at this point it's minus 20. So I have been able probably a little bit lucky that way. But yeah, I've been riding and up through January, like I haven't stopped. And that's pretty amazing. Like usually I stop late November. Fantastic. Now you mentioned uh, wearing normal clothing and that's a, another theme that is is really all about what the plain bicycle movement is about. So let's dive a little deeper into that whole concept. Sure. So first off, like when I say like you can cycle in everyday cycling and everyday clothing, it's not to say that you can't cycle in. I've had some people attack me on Twitter. You can you can cycle in your kit if you want to cycle in your kit. And that's awesome. Like if you want to if you get really sweaty, you ride a sporty bike, you want to change it to get to work like good. Do it. It's all biking. It's all good. But I think that that excludes a huge population from even being interested in it because they have no interest in changing when they get to work. They're not going to ride a bike to the grocery store if it means like kidding out. So on a Dutch bike, it's specifically designed so that you can ride it in any clothing in any weather. And what I mean by that is that the, the big thing is the chain guard. So it's a fully enclosed chain guard. So you can't catch your pants on it. You're not going to get dirty. The fenders keep it even when it's raining or snowing, like they keep the snow from splashing back at you or up your back if you don't have one in the back. And then the, I also have a skirt guard on mine or, or coat guard. So basically, if you're wearing something longer, like if you're wearing a more fashionable kind of long trench coat or something, it won't get caught in the wheel. Or I have a lot of like palazzo pants I wear on my bike. So I'm all about the outfits. So I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't even wear them on that pink bike I had. So, but on this Dutch bike, I can because nothing gets caught in the wheel. And just the way you kind of step on and off of it as well. Like I can even wear shorter skirts on it and it's fine. And the angle of your seat is is in such a way that you really can wear any outfit on it and you don't have to change and you're going at a slower pace like the bike is designed to go at a slower pace too so you're, you're really not sweating as much even in the summer yeah yeah and uh you, you sort of described it but you know the name of these these bikes are um so they're called oma feats or grandma bikes and uh, sometimes in North America, when we say grandma bike, it's like kind of meant as an insult. You know, it's you, you say that disparagingly at a, at a bicycle, but there they, they, they own it. And I love that they own it. They're old. They're rusty. They probably were their grandma's bicycle at one point and that perhaps where the name came from. But it's meant to ride slow. It's meant to just like, you know, tot along from place to place. And it's, it's just meant as a... Melissa and Chris sometimes describe it as like a wheeled pedestrian or pedestrian plus. So if you kind of think about conceptualize it, it's not necessarily about biking somewhere fat to get there faster. It's just like more convenient and a bit quicker than walking. 
Right, right. Yeah. And and you we have a visual feed here so you can see over uh, over my shoulder here that I have a, a photograph of a, of a green Omafitz, uh, uh, you know, park next to the canal there in Utrecht. And uh, it's it, it's a scene, you know, oftentimes we attach a gender to it and say, oh, well, that's a female bike. But in reality, and you mentioned this in the series or it is mentioned in the series that, in fact, you know, many men, in fact, I find it much more uh, convenient to have a step through frame when uh, you're in that sort of slow cycling environment, urban environment, where you may be frequently stepping off to, you know, dash into a, a store or into a, a cafe, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Also, and also, if you are loading your bike up with things on the front and back, I don't know how you swing your leg around if you if you've got like a case of beer on the back. So it's uh, it's definitely um, a little bit easier for for that as well. Yeah, uh, I do not have a step through frame here in in Austin, Texas, and the the bike that I have, which is actually I've got uh, two that are sort of my urban bikes, and both of them, uh, you know, are the standard sort of frame design for a man, you know, sort of thing. And uh, yeah, I I run into that all the time. I'll forget that I've got groceries piled up in my panniers in the back there and they're sticking up like, oh no, that was my, (laughs) my, my orchid that I put in there are flowers or a tall piece of bread or something. And oops, you know, yeah, I can't swing my leg over the back there like that. Um, it, the funny thing is, the the irony is, is that when I've traveled to the uh, the Netherlands and, and throughout Europe, I always bring my uh, Brompton folding bike. And so it, with the Brompton folding bike, I'm able to step over, you know, the top just like uh, on an Oma feeds. And so I haven't really had a lot of experience with the Dutch bikes because I always have my my personal traveling bike with me. And uh, so I feel now like I've missed out a little bit <laughs> on that experience. So I'm going to have to get uh, rectify that one of these days and, and uh, get a little Dutch plane bicycle uh, happening here. So describe to me a little bit about that broader movement of the plane bicycle project and uh, now that we're a few months removed from that third wave of, of bikes that arrived uh, in the midst of a pandemic, um, what, what sort of impact is it having on the, the city? So I do think that it is having an impact just because when you start to see people cycling in a different way, it starts to open it to more people. So I am, when I do bike to and from work, I do see some Dutch bikes here and there. And then I also see people on, you know, on kind of upright bike or North American bike, or even sometimes on an old, there's some, there's some like old road bikes that are really popular here that you see kind of all the hipsters riding, but there, I do see more people riding even those bikes with like regular clothing on. And I do think that the more people that do it, the more people that realize, Oh, they're doing that. That looks normal. I can do that too. So I do think it's a, it's, it's a slow cultural shift and I don't, because we've had a bike culture that's a little bit faster, a little bit sportier for so long. I don't think that'll ever go away, but I do think that it's starting to make people realize that there's, there's other ways to cycle and I do think that recent investments in protected cycle, cycling lanes in our the center of our city have, have helped that as well because it makes it less frightening for people to give it a try. But yeah, the goal of the project is essentially to show people that there is a different way to ride a bike and that 
there's different types of people doing it and, and you could do it. So, and we're trying to push that further, even by, um, playing bicycle projects. Sometimes when we could do things like street festivals before COVID would, would show up and just get people to ride. And, and there's people that have bought bikes that, you know, they're, you know, in their sixties or seventies and they haven't ridden a bike since they were 20 years old. And they're, they're, they're experiencing it again, almost for the first time. The, the price is really accessible. So there's people that like, you know, can't afford to buy a thousand, two thousand dollar bike, but these used bikes are like they're three hundred and fifty dollars Canadian. So uh, even though it's still not accessible for some people, like a lot of people are able to afford that, or they can volunteer with Plain Bike and get some access to them. Leanne Perry also started a project I was helping her out with, uh, where we were teaching women who are new to Canada how to ride bikes, and we only got through about I think three teaching sessions before we had to stop because the COVID numbers started to go up. But what that was about was that, you know, you come to Canada, you're not really familiar with the culture and maybe like you only see people driving. You don't always have, you don't always have a lot of money when you're moving to a new country, obviously. So we were working with the immigrant and refugee community to uh, help women learn how to ride a bike. So I think we want to push the impact in that way is just to, now that these bikes are available in Winnipeg, like, we want to show more people that this is a good way to get around and an affordable way to get around. And I think for me personally, my goal moving forward with some of that will be to try to push it further into different communities and show people that might be feel like that's not a part of their community or that's, you know, that's something that more middle class people do. I can't do that. Like, whatever, or, or that's like not my culture that, you know, it is an accessible form of transportation and, and, and try to be more open in that way. When we return after this very brief break, Erin gives us an update on the Plain Bicycle Project from her perspective, how the upright bike can help get more people riding more often and the actions we all can take to support others in beginning to ride. But before we get into those discussions, allow me a moment for a quick request. If you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please share it with a friend or a colleague so we can grow the audience and this movement to create safer, more inviting places that promote a healthy culture of activity. Okay, that's it for this short intermission. Let's bring our conversation with Aaron back up to speed. Well, I know you're not representing the, the the Plain Bicycle Project per se, but can you give a little bit of an update as to what's happening, you know, in the community along those lines? Yeah, so there, there was that project that we were working on um, with uh, IRCOM, which is an immigrant and refugee center in Manitoba. And then there's also what actually Plain Bicycle, one of the lines I say is that it's not, this is not a bike shop, it's a culture bomb, but they actually do have kind of a bike shop now. So uh, it, they're calling it a bicycle garden and it's on Sherbrooke Street in Winnipeg. And it's a headquarters uh, in a way for our office for Winnipeg Trails, which is the advocacy body, which Plain Bicycle branches off of. And then they are selling new bikes and they're doing little repairs and they're bringing parts in from the Netherlands. So there's that as well. In terms of like outreach, things are kind of hard right now because of COVID, but uh, the Plain Bicycle Project still exists and we still, you know, want people to <laughs> want people to know about us and want people to know that that there's a 
different kind of bicycle available in Winnipeg, if that's what you're looking for. Right, right. Yeah. And I noticed on their website, um, yeah, there it, it looked like there was a pretty good choice of new upright bikes. They they definitely look like they're of Dutch style. I'm not sure if they're they're actually Dutch brands or not, but uh yeah, that that looked very encouraging. Um obviously it's a to your point earlier though, the new bikes do come at a higher price point than than say being able to to recycle an older bike. Yeah, and that's one of the issues with importing them it too is because that adds a lot of cost. So a bike that might cost you the equivalent of $600 Canadian in the Netherlands is probably going to cost you $1,000 by the time it's landed here. So the, and the new bikes, like even in the Netherlands, like I have a, my Dutch bike that I got from Plain Bicycle is a gazelle bike and like, it's great. I love it. It's in great shape. It's a classic brand. Like it's beautiful. And it has, it even has like a dynamo hub in it and everything. And I'm pretty sure if I were to bike that bike new, it would be like $1,500 at least. So um, I bought it for 350. So even even if you buy like the totally, you end up with the total bare bones one. They're super good quality, like steel frames. You can swap parts out if you need. So there are those options. Some people just want a new bike, so that's why they thought like it would be a good idea. Because some people just don't like the idea of having a used bike, and and they are like, you know, in varying degrees of of wear. So understandably, some people want a new one. So that's why we provided that option. But I think the used option is always has to be there too, to make it a bit more accessible. Yeah. Well, and, and every new bike uh, ultimately eventually becomes an old bike, you know, and it's, yeah. <laughs> if, you're, if you're planning on, if you're sold on this idea and you plan on riding that bike for many, many years, it's like, what, you know, investing in a, in a newer one. And if you have the, the resources to do so, maybe that's a very intelligent decision. One of the things that we've talked about a lot in the uh, Active Towns podcast in season one was the impact of electric assist bikes. And, and uh, I mentioned uh, earlier before we started recording that that one of my first uh, episodes of this season two was talking about electric assist bikes. And one of the things that we're seeing you know, happen in the Netherlands is that the distances that people are feeling comfortable riding, especially um, some of the older adults who are riding very frequently in the Netherlands, is is increasing because they're able to to go from village to village, from town to town, on some of the the very nice uh, separated infrastructure that they have in the Netherlands, and so that is really sort of a, another empowering movement that's taking uh taking place as those electric assist are you guys starting to see any of that there in your city um yeah i am actually like i'm i don't personally have an e-bike but i have seen the impact of them especially on older adults and seniors who maybe feel that they are they can't ride a bike or they get tired faster or whatever like it just, um, I have seen a lot of, and even beyond my city and on, on Twitter, I do see a little bit of the e-bike controversy as well, because there's some people that are riding things on the bike lanes that are not really an electric assist bike, and they call it an e-bike, and they're basically on a motorcycle mowing everyone down. So, but I don't really see that as an e-bike. I, with the electric assist bikes, like I have seen them, and I, and I do see great potential for that for people 
that and either either that have an issue that cycling's harder for them or for people that want to go longer distances. Like I have no problem riding 40 minutes to my parents' house, but that's a pretty long ride. Like you have to be in decent shape to do that even on a Dutch bike. So I think that it, it'll open the the door for cycling to be more uh, more of an everyday thing. And, and then you see them a lot, the pedal assists on, on some of the new cargo bikes and uh, bikes that are meant for meant for transporting goods. And that really makes a lot of sense because you're adding weight to your bike and it makes it easier to ride. Yeah. One of the things that uh, occurs to me and and it sort of popped up into my head when I was listening to your series a second time yesterday was that I think the the statement was somewhere and may have been either Chris or Melissa that talked about how recreation cycling or sports cycling could be, you know, sort of a feeder to more everyday utilitarian cycling. And the funny thing that, that, you know, jumped into my head was that, that it could also work the other way too. And, and the reason why I say that is because some of the world's greatest racers and cyclists, you know, in, in sports cycling are Dutch. And in fact, partly because they've grown up on bikes. And so it's, it's a, an extension of what they do because they're, they're used to being on a bike and, you know, they continue to do it for everyday use, but at the same time, they embrace and, you know, and do quite well on the worldwide stage of, of being sports cyclists and, and recreational cyclists. So I think it kind of works both ways. Yeah, I think definitely. And I think that people that are just interested in bikes probably have more than one type of bike. Like Herbert, he goes on long rides on his, um, I'm not even... See, I always say sports cyclist because it's not an insult. I just don't know what to call them. I'll be quite, quite honest with that. I don't know the types. So like he goes long distances on like a sporty or road racing bike type of bike quite often. And I see his, you know, his, his posts and stuff. And I think that one point he made too is when I put up my first episode, I had a pretty aggressive troll telling me that I was an upright bike fundamentalist. And uh, he was upset about that. And he said, no, bikes are for everyone. And then when we recorded the last episode, I talked to him again, and he really wanted to drive that point home. And, and, and that's totally what I believe. I think that we're all part of a cycling family. And there's different um there's definitely connections both ways and there's and we can all help each other and the parts on the bike are the same so it's like you know we can all kind of learn from each other and learn different ways of 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 biking and it's not about what's better and what's worse the only reason I advocate for the Dutch cycling style is it's because it's what I enjoy and I do see it as something that can bring it to more people and that is why I want people to know about it and learn about it but it's not because I don't like other types of cycling, or I don't think they're valid. Yeah. Yeah. It's well put. And, and you, it sort of alluded to it earlier too. And, and talking about the protected infrastructure in the downtown area. And we'll, we'll talk, we'll drive down a little bit on that uh, in, in just a bit. It's that concept of it's cycling for everyone, for all ages and abilities. It's not about aggression or race or, you know, or sportiness or, but let's go back to that all ages and abilities, uh, infrastructure that's starting to emerge in the downtown area. What's, what's sort of the update on that? Um, so last year they completed a, a protected bike lane in Winnipeg that goes all the way down, um, Graham street, which is a street that kind of cuts through a whole downtown. And it, for me personally, it's made a huge difference because we have a bike lane, protected bike lane that goes up Assiniboine Avenue, which I live kind of 
Osborne Village or Gray area. So it, it hel- you probably don't know the areas, but anyways, it helps me get from that area to the downtown. So now I, and there's some other lanes in downtown too, like there's a Bannatyne McDermott running the other direction. So I find like I can actually navigate downtown quite well on my bike, but I think the issue is the surrounding urban neighborhoods, because what's happened is in our city anyways, they've developed the bike infrastructure right downtown, and then they have developed bike infrastructure out in the suburbs, which is more leisure kind of riding, or you could ride it to connect to more of the urban stuff, but it's it's kind of a different thing. But actually in those urban neighborhoods, there's not really safe ways to connect to the downtown infrastructure. So I find that actually, even though I live in the densest neighborhood in my city, I find that connecting to that can sometimes be difficult because you have to go on the road. And even though they're residential roads, they're cut through roads basically for other people (laughs) to get through my neighborhood to get downtown. So I think there are some projects in place that haven't been funded, but I think that's the biggest thing is, is we have to start to look at the infrastructure in the urban neighborhoods that could connect and move out from there and start to fill in the, fill in the gaps for safety. And I do see like a lot of, of cycling in all the in urban neighborhoods of like in the North End, even when I bike through there, I do see a lot of people on bikes using them for transportation which is one of the lower, more lower income areas in our city, but there's not actually bike lanes there at all. So I think that if you start to provide those people with better opportunities, then we start to connect our whole city. And, and, and that would be great because the one protected bike lane that I do have or two now has made a huge difference in my life. So I just can see how they can make differences in other people's lives if they had access to it. Yeah. As this culture bomb has sort of exploded in your area and more and more people are out on the streets riding upright bikes, is that starting to have a positive influence on the motor vehicle, you know, drivers that are out there? You know, what's what what's that uh, relationship like? I think it's easy to be negative because everybody always has a bad experience at least once a week if you ride your bike every day and an aggressive motorist, probably twice to three times a week. But in general, I've actually, so I've been riding my bike to work. Even when I had a car, I rode my bike to work. So I'd say for about eight years, I've been riding my bike to work and downtown. And um, I've noticed a huge difference from that start point to now. Part of it has to do with, I think, the density of cyclists, because I think just more people are using bikes for transportation across the world in general. But then I also do think that cars are starting to get more used to them because they're being more accepted because there are places for them to go once they're out, once they do get to the protected bike lanes. So I, I've definitely noticed over, even over the last three to four years, people giving me more breadth when they're passing and being less aggressive and, and, you know, really making sure that like sometimes people are almost too nice and they stop and they say, Oh, go, go, go. But like when you're like snow is blowing in your face and you're trying, you're just like, no, it's okay. You can drive. I see you. But I, I think that 85% of drivers are quite good with cyclists now. Whereas I used to think that there was like the cyclist was seen as the nuisance. Yeah. And I do think the having more different types of riders helps because it's not, you know, 10 years ago, it was just the guys in, and it was guys in, you know, in spandex and the helmet and they would ride like in the middle of the lane and go as fast as they can. And I think that now that there's a lot more people like me that are kind of toddling along and they're there, you know, you can really see their face. You see them as a person and Anders kind of talks about that a little bit. I think at one point in the podcast is you see a person on a bike 
not just a machine. So it's easier to empathize. And so I think that over time, most drivers have gotten a little bit better, but the best way to avoid those conflicts is to really have space for both because people, you know, you can put as many share the road signs as you want. I'm vulnerable. I'm weak. I'm, I'm on a little piece of metal and I'm, I'm my, even if I'm wearing a helmet, my body's completely exposed. Whereas you're behind like a huge metal box. So I think people, I'm not saying anything against drivers, but I think you just have to realize the position of power you're in and, and empathize with, um, with the vulnerability of somebody that's on a bike and, and make room for them. Yeah. And that's part of the beauty of the, the plain bicycle, you know, the Dutch upright bicycle is, uh, and you mentioned it is mentioned in the, in your podcast series that, you know, you're sitting more upright, you're more likely to be wearing normal clothing. You're much more approachable. It, you know, the, the image that is being presented is that I'm, I'm not a cyclist. I'm just a person who happens to be riding a bike. It's that pedestrian plus concept that Chris likes to refer to. And part of the additional thing that I really reinforce and have been doing so over the past decade is also smiling and waving and, and making uh-huh. that connection. We're all drivers at some point in time, most of us, and we know what it's like to be in that hermetically sealed environment. It's really easy to just be kind of caught up in your own world, et cetera. But if you've got like this smiling guy or girl (laughs) waving at you from a bike, from an upright bike going, hi, you know, oh, it sort of gets them out of their, their little fog that they're in yeah, and it rehumanizes that experience. Yeah. Sometimes I like, I do that. And then I'm like, oh, I I shouldn't have to do that. Thanks for not killing me. But (laughs) at the same time, I've noticed that if I do do that, you just get a better reaction and something better. Like you kind of like, I think it's, it's nice to just give a little wave, like, oh, thanks. Like when they wave you on and and that kind of thing. And I sometimes have to hold in my aggression when it goes the other way, (laughs) Uh, which I'm, I'm very in success rates. But, uh, but yeah, I think that you, even though you can't see that person behind the, like in, in the car, sometimes it is a person as well. So they can relate to you if you wave or smile and, and just kind of relate to them as a human being. <laughs> well, and, and ultimately, if our, our ultimate goal as advocates is to get more people out riding and enjoying, um, you know, the joy of riding, uh-huh. being able to, you know, present that image and be welcoming and, and not be seen as the other is, is so powerful because, you know, that driver that you have a positive interaction with might be like, wow, she looks like she's having a really good time and she's so happy. Yeah. Maybe I could try that. You know, I've got a bike in the garage that I haven't been on in years. And so from a human behavior perspective, I like to try to always go towards the positive and realize that humans are a herding species. And so we will kind of follow, oh, wow, I know I need to get more exercise and or activity. We don't even have to call it a workout or exercise. It's just, you know, low level physical activity. And she looks like she's having a good time. Maybe I should try that. Yeah. And I think that's another point that came up at some that like, you know, it, it really is activity. Like, even though I ride very slowly and I'm not like, I'm not getting up the speed, like I would at a spin, spin studio or anything. I have found difference in my personal health and my mental well being as well, because the way that 
our cities have been designed for a long time. It's physical activity is designed out of it a lot because you kind of do your errands, you go to go to work and you're, you're stepping into a vehicle. And even with taking the bus, there's some walking involved always. So if you're choosing to ride your bike or walk for your everyday tasks, uh, especially when you're really busy and we get busier once we get out of COVID, it, it will make differences in your in your health physically and your mental health without having to always try to squeeze in that gym time. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything that we haven't discussed yet or covered yet that you want to make sure we uh, talk about? Yeah, I think that one of the things I, I didn't really realize when I was first starting out on the podcast was the bike itself and the design of the bike and how much influence that could have on bicycle culture. Like I kind of always thought, we have a car culture, that's why we don't bike or we don't have the infrastructure that happens a lot of times. We don't, and which is a huge part of it. We don't have the protected bike lanes and that's why people don't bike. And I didn't really realize how much the culture is influenced by the design of the bike and how this bike is just, is just designed to get you from point A to point B and do your daily errands. And there isn't really anything like it available in North America because even the upright bikes that are available have like added features that don't really help the average person, especially here in Winnipeg where it's flat. Like I have seven gears on my other bike. Do I, I always have it in the middle gear. There's no point to the other gears. So I think that I didn't realize how much the design of the bicycle really influenced bicycle culture and also by, and also the modal split. So the 70, 30 men, women, like when I went through, the process of playing bike and we saw how many people were at that launch party and how many people were women um, was really cool to see because I really related to that seeing so many women who thought, you know, I would like a different way to get to work. I would like a different way to kick around um, with my friends, but I just don't see myself on the type of bikes that my friends are riding. Yeah. And I think the irony is, is that our ultimate goal is that it's not a bike culture at all. Yeah. I mean, the Dutch don't really view it as a bike culture. I mean, it's just <laughs> like Chris keeps repeating. It's like pedestrian plus. It's just yeah. a, a simple, pragmatic tool that, you know, well, of course I'm going to <laughs> get on my bike. It's it just it makes sense logically. I talk a lot about how communities can start creating this kind of culture of activity, but if we're successful at it, it just, it kind of absorbs into the background to, you know, the fact that the built environment is such that it encourages people to live a healthy, active lifestyle. And, it, you know, pragmatically humans, you know, can make that decision. Oh, you know, I can easily walk or bike to my preferred destination. It's close enough to do so. It's a welcoming environment. And I just, I do it. I don't think about it to the, to that you know, think about it in the same way of I'm part of a group, mm -hmm. I'm part of a culture. And that's, you, you have to get started somewhere. And, and that's where you, you, you create that click and you create that movement. And then, but ultimately, if we're truly, truly successful, then it starts to become a, a, a bike culture or a culture of activity, not with a capital C, but with an under, <laughs> you know, it, it's like a, a, a small C culture of where it just kind of absorbs into the background and people just naturally do it because it's the thing to do. 
Yeah. And I think Melissa made a point in relating to that too, in one of my interviews where she said like, people can't feel like they're going on a crusade every time they get on a bicycle. And I was like, yes, that is exactly. Cause you know, even me, like I never thought I would be doing this. I never thought I would be advocating. I never thought I would be doing a podcast about it. I never thought, I mean, I think it came, comes from me just being like a person who's passionate about cities and wanting cities to be better, but I shouldn't have to do that. Like I should be able to just buy a plane bicycle and make my life good and not have to be asked 10,000 questions every time I show up to a construction site visit on a bike and people think it's so novel. Like, why is that so weird? All I had to carry was my steel toes and a safety vest and a hat. Like I, I, why, and it's downtown across downtown from where I work. Why would I drive? That's silly. Like it's, it's probably faster to ride my bike and, and people just think it's so silly, like, or novel. And then people are like, Oh, I could have given you a ride. And it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's, I always have to explain it. I always, we're definitely not at a point where it's normalized because every time I show up to a party in a dress on my bike, people say, Oh, you rode your bike. That's so neat. Like, you know, so it, it shouldn't be neat. It should be, that's how you get places because it's easy and it's practical and it doesn't make sense to drive. Like it seems excessive and wasteful. Like we should be thinking more on that, but baby steps. <laughs> well, I, and I think, you know, to the point is, you know, reinforcing that, Oh yeah, no, this really was a logical pragmatic step and move for me. It really isn't that hard. It's not that extraordinary and be welcoming and, and not be preachy about it yeah. and, and be saying, you know, Hey, I, I'd be happy to ride with you if you'd like to give it a try and, you know, and, you know, be able to spread that joy to others in a cheerful way versus a preachy way. So mm -hmm. I think that's important. Yeah. And I, and yeah, I think it's important to reach out to people too, who are interested in it. Cause I have a few friends who are women who haven't ridden a bike since they were a kid. And like, you know, some of them recently bought a bike or some of them don't know what to buy. And, and I've always said, you know, I have two bikes come with me or my friend who bought a bike this summer. I said, she was like, I've only been biking on trails uh, because I don't want a bike in the, on the street or in the bike lanes. And I don't know where to go. And I don't know the rules. And, and I'm always like, just, we'll just do it together. Like we'll do it together until you get more comfortable. And I think that helps too, is there's a lot of people, I mean, I'm, friends with women, but like, I think there's probably even some men who feel like they don't feel comfortable on using a bike for transportation. I mean, a lot of that comes from the cars, but it's just like, they don't feel comfortable. They don't know how to do it. They don't know the rules. So I think, you know, reaching out to people in Winnipeg sometimes, I can't remember which organization does it, but there's sometimes group rides for events and things like that for Nuit Blanche Winnipeg. It's like, I think there's one where it's, you go from, or some of our festivals anyways, you go from a neighborhood, you meet, meet at this park in this neighborhood and we're all going to bike downtown together and things like that to help people get comfortable with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And, and keeping in mind too, that in most North American cities, you know, somewhere, you know, between 50 and 70% of the people who are not riding a bike currently either for daily use or for recreation or for sport, but would if they felt like it was safer to do so, you know, that interested yet concerned, you know, part subset of the population. Mm -hmm. And so it's there, there's that latent need. And so that brings us back around to 
the built environment and city design and transportation infrastructure and creating safer places for all ages and abilities. But it also includes, you know, those of us who are out there using our bikes on a daily basis to be supportive of and welcoming of bringing more people into the fold and helping, you know, show them the ropes. So for those listeners that are listening in and are inspired by our discussions, what advice would you have for them to make a difference in their community? I think just get on your bike and have fun. Like I, I, uh, there's lots of bike advocacy things. Like there's lots of conversations about bike. So I'd say if you want to talk about it, get on Twitter, but I think just see if there's already anything existing. Cause a lot of cities do have some like Winnipeg, I think has like three different bike organizations that are very similar, but all have their own agendas. But I think just like find find one that's interesting, get on Twitter. I've actually gotten into the me- local media quite a few times by just tweeting something. And I think that everybody has has a voice. So just know that your voice is just as important as other people's. I don't have a PhD in cycling. I just like I just care about my city. So put your voice out there, however small or however large you want. And, and people are going to listen and people are going to be interested. Fantastic. Well, you just mentioned Twitter. Um, is, <laughs> is that the best way for people to to be able to follow your work? Yeah, I think Twitter is the is the most active way for people to follow me. So um, I'm at Aaron Riediger. So it's E-R-I-N-R-I-E-D-I-G-E-R, which is kind of complex with vowels, but hopefully you can just find it some way by searching Aaron and Plain Bicycle. You'll probably find me as well. And then Plain, the Plain Plain Bicycle, the podcast. Uh, it's available on all major podcast platforms. So whether you use uh, iTunes or Spotify, uh, Stitcher, and I think it's on Google and Amazon as well now. Fantastic. And of course, we'll have the, the links in the show notes uh, and out on the landing page for this episode, which you can find at activetowns.org. Aaron, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, chatting with you here today on the Active Towns podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is great. Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 57 of the Active Towns podcast. I certainly hope you enjoyed this conversation with Aaron about the remarkable impact that the completely unremarkable plain Dutch bicycle is having on Winnipeg. Please be sure to check out our landing page for this episode for a bunch of cool photos, links to the Plain Bicycle Project, and of course, her fabulous Plain Bicycle podcast series. A couple of quick reminders before we part ways. First, please don't hesitate to drop me a line. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. It's always wonderful to hear from y'all. Second, a quick reminder about making a donation. If you're in a position to do so, I'd be incredibly grateful if you'd make a contribution to Active Towns so I can keep producing this content. As a small nonprofit, it's just one person operation here, Every little bit really does add up and makes a big impact. To do so, head over to activetowns.org and click on that blue donate link in the top right corner of the page. Thank you. Well, that's all for now. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.